Well, uh, Pastor Nick asked me if I would continue the series on 2 Corinthians while he's away. So this morning we're going to be back in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to cover verses 3 through 11 today. <clears throat> if you will, stand for the reading of God's word. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 11. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ abound to us, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. But whether we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or whether we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which is working in your perseverance and the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even to live. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not have confidence in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, we, who rescued us from so great a peril of death and will rescue us. He on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet rescue us, you also joining and helping us through your prayers on our behalf, so that thanks may be given on our behalf by many persons for the gracious gift bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Let's pray. Father, all of us here are unworthy servants of yours. Each day we sin in thought, word, and deed, but you and your mercy have forgiven us in Christ. No praise we can offer up to you is good enough. No worship we offer up to you is as pure as you deserve. But you see all the tainted and sin-marred praises of your people through the blood of Christ. See now my meager attempts at preaching your word through that same blood. We ask for your blessings in the ministry of your Holy Spirit as we try to mine the depths of your revelation. May it be for us a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Please use it, Father, for the strengthening of your saints, as well as the conversion of sinners. Amen. You can be seated. Well, as Pastor Nick noted last week in the introductory message, the book of 2 Corinthians is Paul's attempt to defend his apostolic ministry in the face of false teachers that have arisen in the church. These false teachers, which Paul sarcastically calls super-apostles, are working seeds of doubt into the minds of the Corinthians. Surely, they say, Paul isn't a true apostle of Christ. Do you think that a true apostle of Christ... One who's really doing the will of God would go back on his word? Do you think that a true apostle would tell you that he's going to visit your church and then back out on his promise? We'll see that later in chapter 1. They were also saying, do you really think that a true apostle of Christ would be such an unimpressive preacher? We see that in chapter 10. But far and away, the objection that Paul responds to most frequently in this book seems to be the objection that God wouldn't let a true apostle suffer like the apostle, apostle Paul is suffering. Look at how many times Paul has been sent to prison. Do you really think God would allow one of his servants to be drugged behind bars for the cause of Christ? Look at how Paul has been flogged and stoned in public. Are we really to believe that God would let a servant of Christ endure such things? And with crafty and subtle words, the Corinthians were being led astray from God's messenger. How often we see false teachers creeping slowly and methodically through churches till the whole congregation is corrupted. I've heard a lot of people dismiss theological, and, uh, theological education and reading because it's just for the pastor, it's just for the educated, but I really am afraid that if we aren't grounded in the Word of God, if we aren't grounded in right doctrine, then we are very vulnerable to the same false teaching that crept into the Corinthian church. Look at them. We're reading about a church that was founded by the guy who wrote most of the books in the New Testament. 
labored among them for years, had Scripture written to them, and who within a matter of a few years turned away from the Apostle Paul himself. Unless we're built up by solid teaching, unless we have our minds continually molded by the teachings of Scripture, we're like sitting ducks for the philosophies of man. We can all think even in our near memory, can't we, that uh, we've even had some of our own walk away because somehow, some way, there began to be a subtle succumbing to the cunning and twisting of Scripture. Paul puts it well later in this book, chapter 11, but I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be corrupted from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And if this book teaches us anything, it's that false teaching is always harder to fight once you've already let it in the door. But Paul isn't willing to let the sheep of Christ be deceived by wolves. He takes up his pen, and with clarity and competence, he begins to dismantle the arguments of the so-called super-apostles, one by one. And here in our text this morning, Paul begins to respond to that objection, which seems to be on the forefront of the Corinthians' mind, that objection which seems to have the most weight to it, and that's that God wouldn't let his chosen apostles suffer beatings and persecution at the hands of his enemies. Paul's response can seem innocuous at first glance. If you're not familiar with the background and scope of the book, you might just miss what he's getting at. Let's read again, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. Paul begins his epistle by telling the Corinthians that our God is a God of comfort. And his comfort is especially shown to his people in their affliction. As Paul suffers intense persecution for the sake of the gospel, the Christ of all comfort still assures his, con- his conscience. He still soothes his conscience. But notice that purpose statement. And this is Paul's subtle answer to the objection. The God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those. The comfort which Paul receives from Christ and his afflictions doesn't stay bundled up inside of him, but as Christ showers and fills Paul with comfort in his afflictions, that comfort from God spills out into Paul and to his ministry. Paul's trials are teaching him, as we read in Romans 5, that affliction brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope, and hope does not put to shame because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So, when we see the Corinthians doubt Paul's apostleship, Based on his persecutions and sufferings, Paul replies, albeit subtly, by saying, don't you understand that the more I suffer, the better I can minister to you? It's not as if the Corinthians weren't also suffering. He explicitly says in verse 7 that the Corinthians are sharers in his sufferings. So in a very subtle way, Paul answers their objection by saying, my afflictions and sufferings will better equip me to shepherd the flock of God, and that includes you. He goes on in verse 5, for just as the sufferings of Christ abound to us, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. But whether we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or whether we, and by the way, when he says we, he's talking about himself and his companion Timothy. But whether we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or whether we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is working in your perseverance and the same sufferings which we also suffer. The more I suffer, Paul says, the more our gracious God assures me of my hope in the gospel. The more I'm comforted. And the more I'm comforted, the more I can provide you comfort in the Lord. If you want to cast me off as an apostle of Christ because I suffer, then you're rejecting the comfort that my ministry has bought for you. And already we see that in these first seven verses, Paul overcomes the Corinthians' main objection. 
And because Paul has established his argument so firmly, he goes on in verse 8 to say, For we do not want you to be unaware. It's out in the open. Far from being ashamed of his sufferings, Paul says that he, is, he wants his accusers to be aware that he's having a rough go at it. He wants it to be apparent to them that his suffering is great. And he doesn't vaguely mention some form of suffering he's going through. No, he describes in detail exactly what it did to his soul. Let's read on. That we despaired even to live. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. Paul, possibly the most known Christian in all of history, was so pressed down and debilitated by his sufferings that he despaired of life itself. But in all of his sufferings, he recognized that God was working out his eternal purposes. Look at verse 9 again. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, and here's another, so that we would not have confidence in ourselves. Paul's miseries and misfortunes caused him to see just how weak he really was. Far from being some sort of Christian superhero, he was like the rest of us, completely and utterly dependent on God's grace and providence. Paul's office as an apostle didn't elevate him above the common maladies of life, as these super apostles seem to indicate. No, Paul as an apostle stands as an example before men of what suffering well looks like. And part of that suffering well is discerning that it's not meaningless. Christian suffering has a so that to it, as we see in verse 9. Because God is sovereign, because no event in human history falls outside his providential hand, everything in this life, including your suffering, dear Christian, has meaning. The biblical narrative and even our own lives are not part of some random chance universe where everything is ultimately purposeless. Neither does God stand above us passively, observing our sufferings. He isn't indifferent to what's going on down here, and he certainly isn't some absentee landlord. He is a God who is so intricately involved in the affairs of men that the most innocuous of sufferings have real, eternal significance. As Calvin said, the whole world is a theater for the display of the divine goodness, wisdom, justice, and power of God. To say that our suffering is meaningless is like saying pilgrim suffering is meaningless in the pilgrim's progress, or that Gatsby's sufferings are meaningless in the great Gatsby. If it was meaningless, dear brothers, it wouldn't be in the story. But everything that happens down to our suffering is part of the great story of God's work in redemption. There is a so that to our suffering. The particular purposes of God in Paul's sufferings are said to be so that he didn't have confidence in himself, but in God who raises the dead. In his sufferings, God was teaching Paul not to look inward for confidence in this world, but to look to the objective promises of God. In this case, the resurrection of the dead. And it was by this promise that Paul was comforted. But let's zoom out and look at three means in our passage by which the comfort of God is said to come to Paul and by extension us. The first of these means is the character of God. Specifically, the character of God as it's revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look back at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. When you think of the theology of the Apostle Paul, as we read it in his epistles, no doctrine appears as frequently in his writings as union with Christ, as this concept of being in Christ. At the heart of Paul's systematic theology, practical theology, preaching, counseling, at the heart of it all is a rich theology of union with our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's because Paul recognizes that no spiritual benefit, no comfort is given to a Christian outside of their union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to his words in Ephesians 1. This is verse 3 of Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. 
No blessing has ever befallen a Christian. No spiritual grace has ever been given outside of Jesus Christ. So when Paul is suffering at the hands of lawless men, he remembers the Christ to whom he's been united. He remembers his Savior, contemplating the blessings of his union with Christ. His mind is calm and his soul is given peace. And when he beholds the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, his afflictions start to seem less and less pressing. You'd think that with all that, the, uh, that Paul is enduring in his ministry, as we read in chapter 11, imprisonments, beatings, floggings, stonings, starvation, you'd think that he'd be tempted to take the advice of Job's wife, just curse God and die. But he does the exact opposite. He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Far from abandoning God, Paul exults all the more in the Lord through his sufferings because he is assured of the character of God, that he is the God of all comfort. That no matter how many afflictions Paul faces, no matter how many, how many times he's called to suffer, the comfort of God will meet him even there. Many of you here, I'm sure, are enduring sufferings in life that seem in the moment to be too much to bear. The death of someone you love. A parent who can barely remember your name because of their dementia. The son or daughter who has wandered far from the Lord, dear Christian, look to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. As you are driven to despair, remember that little turn of phrase in John 1, and we beheld his glory. Think on the Lord Jesus Christ and be comforted. This week, uh, as I was preparing this message, I realized at a more profound level than I, can ever, um, than I could have ever imagined before how utterly incapable I am, uh, how woefully inadequate I am. No turn of phrase I can offer, no words of wisdom that I can put forward can ever reach to the heights of the glory of God and Jesus Christ. No pastor or preacher can describe to you all his glories. You, dear Christian, go meet him in the pages of Scripture. Go meet that spotless lamb without spot or wrinkle. Go meet that high priest who always lives to make intercession for us. Go meet that Christ who came to do away with the sins of his people. Go meet that paraclete, that comforter, who shows you the face of the Father. Dear friends, go behold his glory. And when you behold his glory, Paul's comfort in affliction starts to make all the more sense. But God is gracious, and he's given us more than one means of comfort in this passage. Look at verse 9 again. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not have confidence in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Paul is comforted, secondly, by the promises of God. I want you to think for a minute about the severity of the Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. And let's actually turn there in chapter 5 of the book of Exodus. going to read a little bit of this passage, starting in verse 6, chapter 5, verse 6. So on that day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people and their foremen, saying, you are no longer to give the people straw to make brick as previously. Let them go gather straw for themselves. But the quota of bricks, which they were making previously, you shall set upon them. You're not to reduce any of it. Because they are lazy, therefore they are crying out, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let their slavery be hard on the men, and let them work at it so that they will have no regard for false words. So the taskmasters of the people and their foremen went out and spoke to the people, saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I'm not going to give you any straw. You go and get straw for yourselves wherever you can find it, but no amount of your slave, slave labor will be reduced. So the people scattered through all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. And the taskmasters were pressing them, saying, Complete your work quota, the daily amount, just as when there was no straw, or when there was straw. Moreover, the foremen of the sons of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, 
were beaten and asked, Why have you not completed your required amount, either yesterday or today, and making bricks as previously? Then the foremen of the sons of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why do you deal this way with your slaves? There's no straw given to your slaves, yet they keep saying to us, Make bricks. And behold, your slaves are being beaten, but it's the sin of your own people. But he said, You're lazy. Lazy, therefore you say, Let us go and sacrifice to Yahweh. So now go and labor, but straw will not be given to you. You must deliver the quota of bricks. You see this harsh and overbearing Pharaoh. Although the Israelites had done little to nothing to deserve it, he acted with his people as a cruel taskmaster, placing harsh demands on them and giving them no rest. And as we see kings and rulers continue to arise in both biblical history and in recent history, we see the tendency for rule and authority to go to the heads of the most powerful With more authority, we seem to always see less care for those under authority. The higher someone's rank, the more we see them belittle those who are under them. It's that way with Pharaoh, is it not? I'm sure he had never even considered stooping down to the level of his slaves to consider them in their misery. He wants what he wants from them, and then he casts them into cruel labor. And now think of how differently the Lord acts toward his subjects. Although we, as slaves of the king, have rebelled, spit against God, and laughed at his law, he hasn't thrown us off in his anger. He isn't like the temperamental pharaohs of Egypt who make harsh and overbearing demands. Quite the opposite. God has graciously condescended to us and heaped upon us promise after promise in the gospel. Kings don't usually eat among the peasants, let alone write up lists of unconditional promises to them. But Paul takes comfort in the many promises that his gracious God has made in the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I will remember your sins no more. Come to me and I will give you rest. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. I will never leave you or forsake you. And the promise that Paul is thinking about here in this passage. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that all he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up at the last day. All of Paul's ailments and afflictions in light of eternity are transient and fleeting. Or as he calls them later in the book, they are but light momentary afflictions. Yes, his body is being beaten. Yes, his bones are being crushed. But as Paul experiences all these hardships, as he despairs even to live, he looks above and beyond himself to the promise of a glorious future. He doesn't fear man because man's ability to persecute the saints only reaches to the physical body. Don't get me wrong. Paul was tormented in his conscience. Again, he despaired even to live. But through all of it, he kept his sights on that stronghold that is the promise of God. Man may do as he pleases, our bodies and flesh may fail, but we serve a God who has declared that there is a day coming where our frail and lowly bodies will be raised to everlasting glory, never to be touched by the violence of men again. Many get tripped up over Paul's comfort here. Our ultimate hope is not going to heaven when we die. Realize that. Yes, we go to heaven when we die, and that is glorious. But that's not the ultimate hope as we have professed it for 2,000 years. No, for 2,000 years, Christians have proclaimed that we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. This sin-cursed world that fights back against us each day, this fallen creation which causes us to suffer, it's fleeting and passing away. There's a day coming in which Christ will come and conquer the great enemy of death. A day coming, a day promised by a trustworthy Christ where no sin and no sorrow will plague us. No pain and no sufferings. All the evils of this sin-cursed world will be dealt with by that Christ who comes to ultimately and finally comfort his people. 
All of Paul's enemies will have been dealt with. All of his abuses will have been rectified. But more importantly, all of his eager waiting will be over. He'll be raised from his grave and put on an incorruptible body that will forevermore live in the joy of his master. The study of last things, as I'm sure you know, it's called eschatology. And usually when we think about eschatology or last things, we're thinking about the tribulation and the millennium. We're thinking about the Antichrist. But what we're talking about here is the glory of eschatology. It's the glorious aspect of it, that everything is being summed up in Christ and will be finally summed up in Christ when we see his face in the resurrection. Look at 1 John 3 for a moment. And let's start in verse 1, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has given to us, that we would be called children of God, and we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not been manifested as yet what we will be. But know that when He is manifested, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has his hope fixed on this purifies himself, just as He is pure. This is what's called the beatific vision. It's that vision which makes happy. It's the time at which our joy is fully and finally manifested as we see with our eyes that which we have only beheld by faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the kind of eschatology that fills our hearts with hope. That's the kind of theology that drives Paul to comfort. There's a day of resurrection coming where he, with a risen body, will uh, will commune with his Savior. It's that promise that's summed up in Christ's words on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Do you long for that day, Christian? Do you wait on it with eager expectation? Is it the all-encompassing craving of your sin-cursed soul? If not, think more on the promise. Think more on the fact that a God who should have damned us all, that should have thrown us into a pit of everlasting contempt, is coming back to comfort His people. Let that be the food for your hungry soul. Let that be the comfort that fills your turbulent heart. Let that consume you with an unquenchable zeal for the gospel. Do you understand this, Christian? Christ is coming for you. That's why Paul could have comfort while a crowd of lawless men were pelting him with stones. That's why his hope didn't fade while the whip was crashing against his back. Because the Christ who upholds the universe by the word of his power has given him a sure promise that if he's faithful unto death, he will receive an unfading crown of glory. That he'll be clothed in royal garb and sit at a kingly banquet with Christ. It's the last line of that great hymn, Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. My goods, my family, my life, these things are here for a moment and gone in the next. But according to the sure promises of God, I will partake in a kingdom that abides forever. According to his promise, I look for a new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. That which is passing and transient will be replaced by a sure and lasting inheritance. So Paul could be beaten and have his near lifeless body thrown into a prison and still write to the Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Last week, Pastor Nick made the comment that a a lot of us will brush that off. Brush off many things that Paul said in this book about his coping with sufferings because, hey, it's Paul, right? He's the holy guy. I'm not. But if you're tempted to think this way, look back in verse 9. We read, So that we would not have confidence in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. We share the same hope of Paul, do we not? 
Is Christ coming back for Paul or for all his saints? Like a good and faithful shepherd, Christ will gather every last one of his sheep on the last day and give each of them an eternal comfort in his presence. And in light of that eschatological comfort, in light of that future comfort, that great beatific vision, we can gain hope in our present afflictions. So trust in the promises of God in the gospel. Memorize them, sing them, do whatever you have to do to make sure that the means of God's comfort never leaves your mind, that the joy of his promises never leaves your soul. And thirdly, we're told that God comforts us through his people. We see the first instance of that in verse 4, where God comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. Pastor Nick has been hammering this point home for really the last couple of years, but we aren't meant to go about life without the regular gathering of God's people. It's not optional. It's not tertiary. It's one of the most crucial aspects of the Christian life. But when we're talking about gathering, we're not talking about sitting here for 45 minutes, maybe 30, depending on how this goes, listening to a sermon and leaving. It's not being in close physical proximity with the people of God. That's not the point. Could you imagine the purposes of that command? Make sure you gather often and sit near the people of God. Or how about, lest your spiritual lives be troubled, give diligence to shake a few people's hands on the way out of the building. No, we're called to much more than that. There's three ways that we provide comfort to one another that we can gain from the text. Three ways. The first is comfort by testimony. The second, comfort by example. And the third is comfort by prayer. Let's look back at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. The first thing Paul does to comfort his hearings is hearers to remind them of the character of God. We've talked about this already, so I'm not going to belabor the point, but I bring it up, not so much to remind us of why we should be comforted, but to remind us how we ought to comfort others. If a church body is healthy, we're in each other's lives. And if you're in each other's lives, you know well what people are going through bouts with their health, family troubles, whatever it may be. And I'm sure you've had these experiences, I know I have, where someone comes to you and says something like this, you know, I have no idea what to do. My marriage is falling apart. At which point, if you're anything like me, you sit there quietly and you have absolutely no idea what to say to that. What can you say to that person? You remind them of the character of God. You might not be able to give them a key piece of advice. You certainly can't fix their marriage, but you know what you can do? You can remind them that no matter what happens, even if your partner is unfaithful, even if they walk away from you, you serve a God who is faithful. And his faithfulness will follow you all the days of your life. And then you can pull out that hymnal and sing, All I have needed, thy hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord unto me. Or what if they come to you weeping and say, The doctor's just called and my son has six months to live. Don't give them false comfort, Christian. Don't give them platitudes. Give them the character of God. Remind them that the the God who rules over the universe has never let a single sparrow fall to the ground apart from his will. If God works little, insignificant sparrows into his divine decrees, are we to think he doesn't have a good and perfect purpose for your suffering? And then again, you pull that hymnal off the shelf and you sing about those hard truths. But the only truths that can possibly bring any comfort, whate'er my God ordains is right, though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart. I take it all in shrinking. Or if one of your brothers or sisters comes to you and says, I've sinned grievously, and I don't think my family will forgive me. You encourage them to do what's necessary, of course, 
confess their sins to the party wrong, but then you assure them human forgiveness may or may not come, but we serve a God who tells us in his word that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes, life might get hard, true enough. Sin is messy, but you have a loving father in heaven who's willing to remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. And then just for good measure, you pull that hymnal out one last time, This should be pretty worn and tattered by now. And you sing, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. But then secondly, Paul comforts the Corinthians by example. How many people here like reading biographies? Anybody? Am I the only one? A couple? Okay. Um, The last biography I read was uh, the late R.C. Sproul's biography. It's fantastic. You should all read it. Uh, (laughs) But why do we read biographies? Yeah, it's good to know general historical information to be an informed person, but I'll tell you why I like reading biographies, because it shows me the virtues of men I want to be like. When I put down Sproul's biography, I wasn't thinking, okay, great, I'll file that away. Next time I get into a game of reform trivia, I'll pull it back out. No, I put that book down and thought I'd like to be more like that man, a man of virtue, a man who stood on his convictions, a man who left a legacy for future generations. I read John Knox's biography last year, Really good biography. And again, I didn't put that book down and think, man, I am so glad I know about the Scottish Reformation. How interesting. I mean, yeah, that's kind of nice. No, I thought, man, I'm a coward. Here I am, tiptoeing around my convictions so my pagan friends don't think poorly of me. Meanwhile, John Knox preached so boldly and so courageously against the sins of his day that the political ruler, Mary, Queen of Scots, is said to have declared, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. We read biographies because we want to be inspired to virtue. That's the point I want to make about Paul. Paul lived a life of publicly displaying both his afflictions and the comfort he received in his afflictions. Back in verse 8, he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia. He's not hiding it. He's putting it on full display. And for the Corinthians, Paul served as a great example of what it looks like to suffer well. I'm sure we all know people in our lives who have experienced deeper and more profound sufferings than most of us could imagine. And you look at them on Sunday morning shouting their praises to God. How in the world is that possible? It's because they have been comforted by the Lord. Not only should we strive to be those people, people who turn to the Lord for comfort, but we should also seek to surround ourselves with those kinds of people, people who are living testimonies of the Lord's goodness and comfort. And thirdly, we see in this passage that we find a comfort and answered prayer. Let's read in verse 10. And he will yet rescue us. This is the end of verse 10 and into 11. And he will yet rescue us, you also joining and helping us through your prayers on our behalf, so that thanks may be given on our behalf by many persons for the gracious gift bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Now, this is the prob- probably the most difficult verse we have to interpret this morning because it's difficult to tell exactly whether the deliverance that Paul's uh, talking about is similar to his deliverance in verse 8, physical deliverance from his enemies, or whether he's talking about that great delivery at the end of days that's just been mentioned when he talks about God who raises the dead. But I'm inclined to think Paul is saying that the Lord is going to deliver him again from his earthly persecutions. Now, Paul wouldn't be able to say that his entire life. If you read 2 Timothy Paul seems to know that uh, the day of his death is at hand, but I think here he recognizes by some means or another that God isn't through with him yet. I say that because I don't think this piece about prayer is a disconnected add-on to what he's saying. Paul says, and he will yet rescue us, and in the LSB, this is all one sentence, I understand the ESB is a little different, and he will yet rescue us, 
and he will yet rescue us, you also helping us, helping with what? With our deliverance, through your prayers, they're helping with the deliverance, through their prayers, so that thanks may be given on our behalf by many persons for the gracious gift, the gift is the deliverance, bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Like I said, I know ESV and some other translations read a little differently, but um, regardless, the Corinthians' prayers affect Paul's deliverance. Paul's deliverance causes thanks to be given to God. In other words, they're thanking God because their prayers have been answered, because, God, because Paul was delivered. The Corinthians can give thanks to God. They can see his almighty hand at work because he answers prayer. We need to be a people who are characterized by prayer, who see our constant need of the mercies of Christ and flee to him for grace. You know, after my last two messages, which had to do with the sovereignty of God and how that impacts salvation, I got a few questions about prayer. And it really, man, uh, burdened my soul because I couldn't explain it well. <laughs> um, and hopefully this does a little bit better of a job, but the question went something like this. How is prayer meaningful if God is sovereign? Why are we praying to God to work in the world if he's already got everything all sorted out? If his plans and purposes, which scripture says, cover everything that happens in this world, if those plans are fixed and determined by God, why are we praying? I think it's a fair question. And I think it's one that, that's worthy to wrestle with, and ultimately, it has a lot of bearing on the comfort that's offered in our text here. Let's think through this as deeply as we can. Flip over to Acts chapter 4 a text we've looked at. Acts chapter 4, we'll start in verse 27. Acts four twenty-seven. For truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Here we have a fixed event, the crucifixion of Jesus. In fact, it's hard to think of an event that could be more fixed than this one. Now let's think through this. We have four parties involved, Herod, Pilate, Gentiles, and Jews. Would Jesus have died, let's ask this question, would Jesus have died, would he have been crucified if those four parties decided they didn't want him dead? If all four parties put down their swords and decided, no, we're not going to kill Jesus, would it still have happened? Well, if the Jews didn't accuse him of blasphemy, if they didn't insist that he be put to death, he never would have gone before Pilate. And if he was before Pilate, even if he got that far, if the Jews didn't want him to die, they would have said, release Barabbas. Without chasing this rabbit all the way down the trail, let me give you the answer. No. If those four groups of people didn't want Christ to die, he would not have died. If those four groups of people didn't want Christ to die, he would not have died, he would not have put, been put forward as our perfect substitute, and no one would be saved. But here's the thing. God's sovereignty doesn't just extend over that one singular event. In God's sovereignty, the Jews, Gentiles, Herod, and Pilate all wanted Jesus dead. It was a sure event. There was no plan B. There was no need for a plan B. God didn't just determine that the crucifixion would happen. He also sovereignly put Christ in Mary's womb. He determined that there would be a safe delivery. He determined that Christ would grow up safely. He determined that all the disciples would be born when and where they were. He determined that Pilate would be born and that Pilate would be a ruler. 
And on and on and on and on does the chain of sovereignty go. What I'm getting at is this. There is no event that has ever happened in this world that exists outside of the sovereignty of God. And that means that your prayers, dear Christian, are so interwoven in the fabric of God's plan that they are so connected to the plans and purposes of God that God uses them to change things in the world. God's sovereignty isn't in conflict with our efforts in prayer. So when James says, you have not because you ask not, that's true. Or we read this in James 5. Is any among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. God really does use the prayers of the righteous. And in our text, Paul is instructing the Corinthians to pray for him so that he will be delivered from the hands of his enemies. Paul spoke as if their prayers would help because their prayers helped. When we pray that our church would grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, God uses those prayers. When you pray that people would profit from a sermon, God uses those prayers. We pray because God really delights in answering the prayers of his people. And it's through those answered prayers that we're reminded of God's faithfulness toward us. We're reminded that he loves us and cares for his people as a father cares for his children. And though those answered, and though those answered prayers the people of God receive a health, heavenly comfort. Excuse me. We ought to heap our prayers before the Lord because he delights in comforting his people through prayer. And yes, that was short, but the worship team can make their way up here. But let me just say, so even in our afflictions, we can run to Christ for comfort. Through thinking on the character of God, reminding ourselves of the promises of God, and turning to the people of God, we receive a peace which surpasses all understanding. We have grace upon grace heaped upon us because our Lord delights in providing and comforting his people. Let's pray. Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would allow us to learn from this passage, that you would shape us by it and make us more profitable servants of yours. Amen.